0: Thanks, good job, John. I hope you all appreciate, not just us as pastors, but the role John is in during this transition time, uh, often being the recipient of a lot of feedback caught in between, so really appreciate all the elders, but particularly as the head elder. We're bringing to conclusion our series, More Than a Building. And uh, Bruce Martin's our speaker, and Bruce, I I think it's just, you know, the hand of God. I I call it the hand of God, but the way things have converged all this morning and that we invited you to be here uh, to hear uh, what John had to say, I believe it will all dovetail uh, together. And so if you do go over, don't worry, I'll be in the back. We'll make sure children, anything that needs to be said as you're directed, uh, we'll have that accomplished. Over, um, I love this. But but let me let me <laughs> let me clarify. I'm doing that. <laughs> no, listen, Bruce. <laughs> I'm doing that on one condition, and that is it's directed by God. <laughs> directed by so if God directs you to proceed further, we're all on board. Uh, Bruce, a Dallas Theological Seminary grad. Came out to the West Coast. Uh, Well, he was out here even before, but planted a church in Eugene. Go Ducks. Right about 19, oh man, you're off to a bad start, Bruce. (laughs) Put your your beaver jacket on for the guy. Sit in the front row. (laughs) Sit in the front row, and last time, but we got some Husky folks here too, so be careful. But anyway, Bruce planted a church there in Eugene, always involved in our district northwest as evangelical free church pastors throughout his years, but in 2009 uh, became what we consider as our district superintendent and faithful. I think what will bleed out, the reason I think things uh, will converge this morning is Bruce has always had a a passion for disciple-making ministries. Not programs perpetuating maybe tradition, but transforming lives of Christians like you, I, and many, but also those outside the walls. So bringing it to a conclusion, let's welcome Bruce Martin, our speaker.
1: Thank you, Ed. It is good to be with you this morning. Can you hear me? Is this on? All right, good. You're doing a great job back there, man. I mean, I don't hear any reverb when I when I kick into that voice of God kind of deal. Then then bring up the reverb a little bit. <laughs> will you? Um, look, my my heart is to help the church in the 21st century, in a culture that is not becoming but has become post-Christian. Try to figure out what that means for us as a church, because. The most compelling person that has ever walked on this earth, Jesus, has asked us as the church to be his body in the presence of this culture and this world. So if the things that we are doing are not enabling us to do that, are not helping us to facilitate that better and better and better, then I think it's worth us stopping and asking some questions, why? What is going on? Uh, Fifty years ago, a fellow named Alvin Toffler wrote the book Future Shock, and he made the observation then, 50 years ago, am I that old? (laughs) He said, the future does not belong to those who are able to read and write. The literacy of the 21st century is going to be defined by those who are willing to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And he wasn't looking into this mystical fog-enshrouded crystal ball. He's a great student of human behavior. Any of you who have been through a recovery, recovery from drug, recovery from alcohol, recovery from porn, recovery from workaholism, recovering control freak, which is probably most of us here, you know that in order to deal with the issues that are really the issues you got to get way down deep in things and understand why your perspective got shaped in the way that it did. And people who are serious-minded about it, 10 years later, you'll be talking to them and they will still say, I'm in recovery. It is so hard to overcome those instincts. And so what Toffler was talking about is not child's play. And when you bring in the the question of Jesus and what does it mean to be a Jesus follower, what does it mean to be Jesus people in our communities and our culture, it's, it's an unlearning of everything that we have instinctively learned up to our point of encounter with him so that he can teach us a new way of living as human beings. And it creates great instability and great difficulty. And if it's done well, at an individual level, and on the level of the community of faith, then what people encounter when they encounter us individually or when they encounter us corporately is individuals who are radically counterculture, who don't have to say I'm a Jesus follower because it's obvious that we're Jesus followers. Buckle up, because the passage that they gave me to teach this morning, by the way, Here's the picture I had as I looked at this. It's like here's a staff sitting around a table, and they're looking at what is this series going to go. And it gets to Ephesians chapter 4 and the passage we're looking at, and they're going like, do you want this one? (laughs) No. Do you want to take it? Not a chance. Should we give it to John? No. He'll just run away with it. He always takes more time than he's given. (laughs) I know. Let's give it to Bruce. Bruce. Let me jump right into it with you. And please, this is, this is requiring. I'm glad we're taping this because for some of us and many of us, maybe all of us, it will be a really good observi- ob- uh, experience to go back and to think. My appeal to you this morning is this when you're encountering something outside the box, a different paradigm, though our instinct is to disengage or to criticize or dismiss my appeal to you is at least hold it. At least hold it with curiosity. And consider the things that I'm talking about. And hold the story sacred. Instead of our preferences or our traditions. I am going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And that is all. Because John took all of my time. (laughs) John, I'm not bitter. I'm not going to continue to reference this. No, I really feel like when you look at at Ephesians chapter 4, 12 through 16, whether you are in the church or in the community, if you look what's represented there, you're going, like, me too. I want to be a part of a community like that. It doesn't require much explanation. The explanation that's required is why after 2,000 years are these things still things that we're aspiring to or not experiencing, things that we're talking about but not known for in the community. And my confidence is this, maybe I'm ideal, maybe I'm naive, but my confidence is this, if we utilize the manner that Jesus gave us to work out what it means to be the church together and we respond to him in fullness and faith and trust, then the outcome will be what he describes. Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse seven, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Let's put on the brakes right there. Each one, when you dive deep into the vocabulary of the New Testament, surprise, each one means each one. one. You will never encounter a human being in your life, in the church or outside of the church, that is not being referenced in that word, each one. Hold that, I'll unpack it in a minute. To each one who is created by our Father, who occupies space on this planet, who breathes the air that you breathe, who lives in the culture that you live, who works in the office that you work, who worships in the building that you worship in, to each one, grace has been given. And it's not the kind of grace where, oh, a little bit of rain falls on everybody. It's a very specific grace that the Spirit of Christ is beginning to unfold here. It's gift to each one, to every human being, the Father who has created us and loves us with an everlasting love, whether we've come to understand that yet or not. He has given us gifts and he decided. The text says, as Christ apportioned it. So there wasn't a smorgasbord, there wasn't this palette of options that were set up and we said, I'll take some of that and I'll take some of that. No, it is what he in his wisdom and his love, which is perfect in every way, has given to you. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it Now, buckle up. That's why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Got it? We're looking at a really powerful tool here. But it's a powerful tool because it emerged from the cultural awareness of those who were being written. Look, I was at Trinity Seminary two weeks ago interviewing interviewing graduating students who were going into pastoral ministry. One of the guys I interviewed was uh, uh, the son of first-generation Korean immigrants to the Bay Area, to Berkeley. And it was just a blast talking with this guy because he totally got just He grew up and he lived and breathed post-Christian, and he totally got how we have to be as a culture, as a church, to be able to be the presence of Jesus in this rapidly changing culture. Had a blast with him. And toward the end of the conversation, he said, you know, just to be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm going to be a pastor forever. I think I'd like to get a PhD. And he described this kind of wackadoodle, narrow bandwidth thing that he's going to pursue in language I just, I lost him. And I'm sitting to myself going like, you know, in my 62 years, I've never encountered anybody with any curiosity about the answer to the question you're raising. But he's enthusiastic about it. He's excited about it. And I smiled at him, and I shrugged, and I said, hey, so-and-so, whatever spooks your mule... And he looked at me and he got dead serious. And in about 10 seconds he said, Did you just, did you just call me a mule? <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, man. I mean, it's just like when you're working, oh, you gotta be so careful about the culture that people come from and what your words mean and what they're hearing. And, when we say it more forcefully so they'll understand it, but we're not making the right connection in our vocabulary, in our tone, and our whatever, it just creates this dissonance and confusion, right? And I said, no, man, that's, I didn't, I'm sorry. I didn't call you a mule. I, I spent some time in Texas, and I had a friend, John, who, like, whenever anybody was getting all goofy about something they were passionate about, he'd shrug and he'd say, hey, man, whatever spooks your mule. And I just thought, well, that's a... That's a stupid thing to say here. Idioms are like that, though. They don't translate very well. If you were a first century uh, citizen of of Rome, what you would encounter was that there were various times when generals went out and they conquered, they put down um, a revolt or they conquered a new people. And part of the deal was that they they would take the valuables from that conquered land and they would bring them back to Rome and for the purpose of repurposing them now to serve Rome and no longer to serve the conquered people. And and part of the deal was this gathered huge crowds because this ruler would inevitably, out of a sense of building goodwill with his constituents, give some of that booty to people, sometimes utterly randomly. And it was a good thing. It was a cool thing. People look forward to that. So that's part of what's going on here. Keep that peace in mind. The other part of what's going on that Paul describes when he goes into this ascended and descended and descended and ascended is this. Think of Hollywood. Um, think of Hollywood. Think of a movie that's got you on the edge of your seats. Think think of uh, Lord of the Rings, the Peter Johnson series, right? There's this little unlikely hero named Frodo. And all of these powerful warriors, even Gandalf the Wizard is saying, there is a quest that has to be undertaken, and I won't touch it with a 10-foot stick. No way. This is not possible. Do you know what you're up against? And Frodo, after having listened to this and watching and observes, he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And his courage is so inspiring as he takes on this quest that those who are around him, all of them, as a person, say, we are with you and we will give ourselves to you in this quest and help you to be successful in that which you are after. Be well, good luck, let's do this. And you know, as the story goes on, Frodo begins to encounter opposition. And those, some of those who committed themselves to him actually betrayed him. And some were picked off in battle. And this band of brothers and sisters gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And still Frodo carries on. And as the thing gets to the end and you're realizing that this ring is the deal and it's got to be destroyed and you see the ferocity of the battle that's unfolding and you're thinking, man, if you've been drawn into this movie, you're going like, is he? Is he going to be able to complete the task? And you know that he does. Mission Impossible at the very last minute becomes Mission Possible. And at the end of the movie, there's this Tankards clacking together and celebration and drink and dance, and and everybody is like exuberant because we are rescued from darkness. And they say to one another, Won't it be amazing how generations from now people are going to be retelling this story? That's what Paul is doing in these verses there is an unlikely hero came down from heaven, born of a virgin Mary, lived a very ordinary life, was known as Jesus, the son of a carpenter, until he became 30, where he took on his public ministry, and his own did not regard him. But as he went out, Sharing his life, sharing his faith, sharing his heart. There were people who dropped everything to follow him. There were crowds who wanted to hang on every word that he said. People received freedom from demonic possession, from mental illness, from health issues. People were healed and restored and made whole. And as you watch the gospel story develop, it's a growing, growing, growing number of people who carry this deep expectation that the Messiah has come The day of living under the oppression of Rome is over. We will be restored as the people of God to our former glory. And the day of the Palm Sunday comes when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's this wild celebration that's going on and you're going, now, now, it's beginning to gain steam, this is happening. And then it takes a sharp turn toward the impossible. As some who are representing a religious system That was all about God, but completely denied God's power and God's personal presence, defied their own code, and said, We will kill him. And and you're sitting on the edge of your seat watching this drama unfold, and you're going, like, no way. No way. You can't stop this. The train is moving down the track. You cannot stop this. And you watch this extraordinary set of circumstances, betrayal and trial, and still you're watching this thing unfold and saying, come on, somebody's going to speak up. There's going to be a gathering of people who will say, we will not be silenced. We stand with this man. We stand for this man. And it gets darker and darker and darker And the last scene is that cross on Golgotha, the town garbage dump up above Jerusalem. And a crowd is silently gathered there, people are undone, and one man says, if you really are God, take yourself off the cross. And those who are gathered there going, please do. Please do, show everybody once and for all. Quiet all the skeptics do away with unbelief. And Jesus utters his last words, it is finished. And folks, those people that were following him that yet remained around the foot of the cross said to themselves as well, it is finished. The story is ended. And three days later, the stone rolls away and the resurrected Jesus appears to very few and then to several more, and then the book of Acts to hundreds of people. This is a story that Paul is capturing in an idiom, in a figure of speech. And it's summarized, it comes to an absolute head at the ascension of Jesus, in which He finally and forever proclaims everything I have spoken is true. You can go to the bank on everything I have taught you. It is all trustworthy. I am trustworthy. You can trust my Father. You can trust the Holy Spirit to lead you well. You can trust that as you live a life that is built on a life, the example of life that I have lived to you, as you elevate the power of love over. The love of power in every way, though it feels vulnerable, though it feels counterintuitive, yet it is the way of life in abundance. It's the ultimate statement that there is no other way than the way of love. And Paul uses this imagery to say it the most authoritative statement of Jesus' ascension that Jesus has gathered gifts from the kingdom that he has conquered. And he has brought those gifts over and he is now repurposing them for the new kingdom. And he is handing those gifts out to men and women who are his followers, who are part of this new way of living as a human being, who understand the value of love and are willing to make connections with people in the name of love. To each one a gift has been given as Christ apportioned it. It was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets, and evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. Now, don't stuff that language into a dark, dank, musty library of sacred terms. Paul grabbed those words right out of the realities of everyday life, conversational life, with people to whom he was writing. Just like the letter John read to you this morning was in very ordinary language, for the purpose of communicating a point. When you think apostle, think entrepreneur. Somebody who understands, man, I've got a product, I'm gonna market it, there's a future in this, but it's only a future as I can find a market for my product or my service. And any entrepreneur knows that if you're not growing, you're dying. You can't go to sleep at the wheel because you gotta keep on pressing, you gotta keep on pressing, you gotta keep on thinking, you gotta keep on imagining. If you grow slack in it, if you go to sleep at the wheel, then there's a cost to be paid. The the apostle, as Jesus repurposes that gift, is the one who is always purposing to extend the influence of the community of faith beyond where it presently is. When you meet these people, there's an urgency about them to say, how can we just sit here? How can we just go through our emotion? Man, there's a whole world outside of our doorstep. We could do this, we could do that, we could pursue this, we could, we could, we could generate this, we could be that. Here's our problem as people of evangelical stripe is that word makes us very nervous because we have heard of people who've taken on the name apostle so-and-so. That word is not about power. It's not about authority. It's about function. It's the function of extension. When you look at the word prophet, think poets and songwriters Those of you who are old enough to remember what it was like in the civil rights movement also remember the mountain of folk songs that came up that were designed to push that thing along, right? Some of them we're still singing today. The people who have a pulse on the conscience who say, no more oppression, no more inequality, no more inequity, Come on, people now. Smile on each other. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. And when Jesus repurposes that gift, that person becomes a a mouthpiece that says, here is the way of God in our midst in this circumstance right now. This is God's word to us. And it's always a word of correction. Like the apostle John who walked with Jesus, the disciple of Jesus says in 1 John, assuming that prophetic mantle, he says, how can you say you love God when there are people in this room you'd rather not spend time with? And he's not asking for an answer. You understand that, right? It's not possible. From the perspective of a man who walks like Jesus, for me to live in that condition without repentance, without throwing myself at the foot of Jesus and saying, I don't know how to overcome this. If you'll show me, I'll I'll respond to you. The evangelist, take down your picture of Billy Graham. The evangelist is the connector, the recruiter. If you're going to throw a party in the park in the summertime and you want to make as big a splash as you can, don't invite a curmudgeon to come and plan it. Get somebody into the mix who loves to party, who has a great reputation with those who are inside the church and outside the church and turn them loose, turn her loose and have fun. And let people see what it means to be people of life and people are pursuing a path of hope and and peace in times marked by great anxiety and great uncertainty. Let people see that. Let them mix up with you and hear your conversations and hear your stories. And when Jesus repurposes that gift, this man or this woman becomes that pied piper who goes out into the community and culture and tells their story and speaks specifically those who are up and outers or down and outers or anything in between outers because he knows, she knows the way of Jesus. I didn't come for those who don't think they need help. I came for the sick. I came for those who need a doctor. The shepherd do I even have to describe that to you? No. The teacher, do I need to describe that to you? Answer? Yeah. <laughs> you rattle. <laughs> Look, folks, here's our challenge, and this is where I'm saying, you've got you to engage your imagination with me because I'm not quite sure how we can overcome this. But in every expression of the church that is gathered that I know of, we have operated on the basis of only 40% of what Jesus gave us to be the church. Every seminary and Bible college I've ever been to only centers down on trading shepherds, pastors, and teachers. And every church is formed around an expectation of everything that will happen and that we celebrate when we have a great shepherd and a great teacher. Those gifts are valuable But I've never found it wise to say to God, I understand your way, I think I have a better way. That always puts up a red flag for me. Why has this happened? I don't think anybody's just stood up and said intentionally, I don't think we should allow these gifts to to, to be. As human beings, we love predictability and we resist change. I have not been here that many times, but some of you are really busted this morning because you're still sitting in the same place that you were in last time I was here. (laughs) Like, really? Do you have a marker that you mark the bottom of that chair with? Yeah? We love patterns, don't we, as human beings. And so think about it. When an apostle comes into the mix... And his voice or her voice says, let's not become self-satisfied, let's keep reaching and here are some ways that we can begin to reach and let's get after this. And, And if it means that we have to do less on behalf of ourselves and for ourselves so that we can unleash this opportunity in the culture, then let's do it. In the name of Jesus, let's do it because we don't have to go to Thailand or Philippines or the Middle East. Right outside our door are the majority of the people that we rub shoulders with who have not yet believed in Jesus. And the church says, actually, just let us enjoy what we have here. The prophet comes into the mix and says, look folks, I'm with you, I'm one of us. And I'm really nervous about something when Jesus says, by this woman know that you are my people as you love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another. How is it that we can exist for days and months and years and weeks without feeling compassion, even anguish for people around us who are people of need? How can we not know their name? How can we not enter into their stories? Is not listening the first act of love. How can we be Jesus' people and lack the most defining characteristic of Jesus? And we say to the prophet, you're getting kind of annoying. I'm serious. And the more specific the prophet's message is, And the more narrowly focused at an individual or a small group, the more we kick into defensiveness and self-justification. And we put our fingers in our ears and we say, you just don't understand us. You're talking about somebody else. And the evangelist goes out and he builds relationships and he tells stories and he finds people who are lost and broken, the scattered sheep, And he begins to build relationships and he begins to say, man, I want you to be a part of the life that I have found. Come and be with me. And in our churches, we welcome people like this at the front door. And we smile and we greet them and we say, we're so glad you're with us. But we don't know how to incorporate each other into our lives. And people who are riddled with insecurity and failure and scars have an acutely high awareness when they're being rejected yet again. But Jesus, at least we uphold the last two gifts pretty darn good. Somebody has said, whether it's intentional or not, the apes have been asked to leave the room. The apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. And so we plod on without imagination, unwilling to be disturbed in our carefully found patterns and pray intensely for God to change them, but are unwilling to cross a bridge to be with them. But the faithful people of God from Abraham up until the present, because they have experienced the heart of God. They've always gathered to uphold the faith. But then they've scattered for the sake of those who do not yet believe. Sometimes as churches and leaders and leadership teams, we spend a lot of energy developing mission statements so that we can have clarity in what we're trying to do. Make it memorable, make it pithy. Let's do it because if we all learn it, we're all on the same page together. And my caution in it is this. The church does not have a mission. The mission has the church. And if the church tries to reframe the mission, then whatever it is, it is no longer the expression of the body. And so I look at these things that are are marked out at a point of great authority and great consummation in the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the ultimate authority of Jesus, and I say, I want to pay attention to this. I want to take it seriously. So it goes. Difficult thing for me to do this morning is to say, what what can we do with this? Um, I think one of the things we can do with it is if you want, you can do some work on discovering where you fit in the range of things that Paul talks about here. What is my primary gifting? Which one of those do I resonate with? Do I have an apostolic bent? Restlessness, pushing the edge. We can do this. Let's imagine what would be. What happened? What? Am I prophetic? Do I feel urgency about closing the gap between the revealed way of Jesus and the settled patterns of consumer Christianity? Am I that person who's a Pied Piper? Who resonates well with people who are far from God. Whom they feel trust with and trust in. And can I use my life and influence to bring people amongst the people of God? Am I that person who is a shepherd, who cares for the flock of God? Who comforts, who encourages, and and when necessary, slaps them on the backside with the rod? Am I a teacher, repurposed by Jesus, the outcome of which is people who are formed in the image of Christ, like Paul said in Galatians 4, "Ah, I labor with you like a woman in labor so that Christ might be formed in you. Look at that gift. Look at that, those, those things. Don't just walk away from this, but ask yourself, where do I fit in this? Uh, If you want some help, I've got some tools that can help you gain some understanding and clarity. And I'll I'll give Derek those things, and together we can figure out how to facilitate this a little bit better. And if you want to know how to use your gift, look at Jesus. All five gifts rest in him perfectly. Is he apostolic? For sure. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Is he prophetic? Wow. Wow, you have heard said, but I say to you. Is he evangelistic? Man, he's the life of the party. Crowds love to be with him, individuals love to be with him. Is he a shepherd? Absolutely. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Is he a teacher? Listen to the crowds. Oh my gosh, come and hear this man. He speaks with one who has authority. Yeah, yeah. Toffler said the 21st century belongs to those who are willing to learn and unlearn and relearn. And the church easily becomes an inelastic rather rigid institution that centers down on what is familiar and comfortable in the way of Jesus is to upset that apple cart. It was never about you. It was never about me. All the blessing he's given us is for the purpose that we would be a conduit to pass it on with our lives because all ministry is incarnational. And this is the last thing. I would say to you this morning, I'll quit. Um, This is not a top-down thing. There is no program that can create this. And I want to say, with compassion and care and understanding, those of you who are carrying the gifts of apostle, extending the church, prophet, speaking truth, to the church, and many times speaking truth to power in the church. And those who have the gathering instincts are going to find that the use of your gifts in the church as we know it is going to continue to push against you, that you're not going to feel openness, you're not going to feel welcome. Don't start the day with a sense that people are going to applaud you for walking out into the arena with your gifts. Because the church as we know it has said we prefer predictability to change. But do it anyway. Start a revolution so that the people who populate the community around us and across the Northwest and across the West of America have a chance to discover the source of life that is the source of life in Jesus. That wasn't too heavy, was it? <laughs> thank you for sticking with me. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the simple clarity that comes from your word that your church is your idea and the manner of being the church comes from you and we're willing to in faith pick up the tools that you have given us that the church will become the church more and more fully. God, I speak with my brothers and sisters. That's what we yearn for. We yearn for the end of divisions. We yearn for the end of infighting. We yearn for the end of this nonsense that the church is just marginalized from culture, and we want to see people find life in the one who is truly life. So God, as always, your work begins with us. And I think there are brothers and sisters here, myself included, who are saying, my hands are open. All I need for you is to be clear and speak to me. And my answer is already yes to you. Just show me. So that's our prayer, Father. On behalf of that sort of openness that exists in this room, Lord, I pray that you will reveal yourself to us with clarity and with power. In Jesus' name, amen.